You're listening to the Truth About Bible Study taught by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. All right, we're continuing this week in our series on the truth about, the truth about the sanctity of human life specifically. And this week we should be getting into the truth about eugenics, racism, sexism, and ableism. And last week, we just finished wrapping up three weeks on abortion. We said that the Christian response to abortion, I think this is the most important part about all the things we said about abortion, how do we as believers respond? We be pro-life from the womb to the tomb. In other words, we care for the sanctity of human life from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. We be careful to be both truthful and loving as we deal with people. We approach people with compassion and grace. Um, We get involved locally. We speak up when we get, we're given opportunity for those who cannot. We read, study, and educate ourselves. And so I say all those things again because I want to make sure that we understand that we have an obligation to actually be involved in these things. That it's not okay just to hold beliefs in our heads without ever doing things about them, without ever act, acting on them. Yeah, I think as Christians, we're called to action. We're called to speak up and to um, be compassionate and graceful with people. And so, reminder to do that. I encourage you once again, be aware and get involved in the opportunities locally that present themselves. This coming Saturday is the Hike for Life, and you can raise some money for that and then go and do just a couple walks around. I think it's a a medium-sized block. And then there's also the Life Chain that takes place on October 2nd from 2 to 3 p.m. It'd be great to see a number of people from our church out there just praying for um, our community and standing up for life. This week, we will round off a number of other social issues that fall under the banner of sanctity of life. We will talk about eugenics, abortion, racism, sexism, and ableism, and see how those things are somewhat connected. And um, in the following week, my plan is to talk about um, suicide and issues like that. Now, if we get a chance, we'll probably talk about how some of the issues we deal with this week present themselves later on in life, not just in the, in the early stages. This week we'll be looking specifically about how racism, sexism, and ableism presents itself in eugenics and abortion. Um, so next week we'll get into more how it presents itself as we get older and how we deal with that. All right, let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for uh, believers that want to know truth and that um, desire to be changed by your word. And God, I thank you for your word, that it's perfect and that we can trust it. And Lord, I pray that this morning we would um, learn something that maybe we didn't know before, Lord, that's it's helpful to us in the future as we um, deal with this subject and as we represent um, you here on earth as well as we can. Lord, and may our lives bring you glory. Uh, may everything that's said and done be um, honoring to Christ. And God, I pray that in the service and in the toddler classes that are to come, that you would just be glorified and that you would draw men and women to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So eugenics. Many people would argue that because eugenics is now illegal in Canada, it's illegal throughout almost all of the world, that it's not a subject worth speaking about. And first I'd like to say that um, I think history is always of value. I think understanding, even if this is not specifically eugenics, the way it was presented in the past is not the same issue now as it was then, it's always helpful to understand what has happened in the past 
so that as we approach the future, we have kind of some context and some bearing. But I think even more so, the ideas that spawned the birth of eugenics are still alive and well today. And maybe that specifically is thought of poorly now, the, the actual act of sterilization. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but the, the thought process that spawned eugenics, that sparked the birth of eugenics, that process is still alive and well today, and, it's, and we see it um, quite often. And so I think it's worth talking about because at least we'll know kind of where it started and to know the roots of it. And so how many people here, you would say you know what eugenics is? Absolutely, you've, you understand it. Yeah, okay, so it's something that, that a few of you know about, but not, not a lot of people. Uh, and I think it's something that's worth talking about just because of that. Um, the definition of eugenics is the study of hereditary improvement of the human race by controlled selective breeding. Okay, so a simple definition. It's a science that tries to improve the human race by controlling which people become parents. That's what eugenics is. The Greek word that eugenics comes from literally means well-born or a good birth. And the goal of eugenics is simply to have people who are well-born, people who are fit compared to people who are unfit. There's two types of eugenics. The first is positive eugenics. And this is where you're encouraging people with positive traits to have lots of children. So if somebody is viewed as being affluent, if they're smart, if they're athletic, if they're beautiful, if they're tall, if they're whatever, if they have traits that, that are deemed beneficial to the human race, then the goal of positive eugenics would be to say, let's try and get more of these people having children. Okay, so it's encouragement there. The pro- problem is, it's a really hard thing to do. Because how do you give some type of benefit only to a certain group of people for having children? I mean, how do you legislate that? It's almost impossible to do. And um, one of the things that they've done, they've done propaganda, or at least they, they did in the past, and they had slogans like, fewer but fitter children. This was like just this propaganda. So get, get this in people's minds that the goal is not more kids, the goal is better kids. And so let's, let's focus on that in our, in our society. So that'd be positive eugenics. The negative side of it, negative eugenics, is discouraging or disallowing people with negative traits from having children. And so this would be teaching birth control methods to the people that you don't want to have kids. It would also be optional sterilization, where you say, if, if you are willing to undergo sterilization, we will perform that surgery on you for free. And it's forced sterilization in some cases, where people who are deemed to have negative character traits are forced to be sterilized so that they no longer can have children. And so I think immediately as we talk about what eugenics is, you see that there's a clash between the Christian worldview and the secular worldview. And I'll explain why. Because the secular, from a secular perspective, as well as I can do, I see improving the human race as a positive evolutionary step from a secular perspective. So if I'm trying to think about this completely logically, okay, if, if, I'm not, if I'm taking my Christian faith out of this and I'm coming from a completely secular perspective and I say, okay, if we have the ability to have less people born who will potentially commit crimes or be a burden on society, 
and more people born who will be beneficial to society, then this seems to be something that would be a good idea. That would be a purely secular perspective. Ethics and morality aside, the logical benefits of this science are great. If I was to challenge you, you might say, oh, no, that's, that's not the case. But if I was to challenge you just from a logical perspective, faith aside, if I had a, a chart of pros and cons, and I said, okay, give me the pros of eugenics, of trying to have more children who are well-born, okay? And, and you were to list the pros, and then I would say, okay, now give me some of the cons. What's, what's bad about this? From a purely logical, secular perspective, it'd be really hard to, to match those lists up even, right? We'd have a lot of pros and probably very few cons. But from the Christian perspective, we know that God weaves people together in the womb that the way that they are, that he has a purpose for them, that every human being is an image bearer of God and is therefore of infinite value. And so God he's doing something on purpose when he puts people together this way, however they're put together. And when a Christian looks at this, we don't see some people who are just more beneficial to society than others. We see God having a different purpose in society for these people than for these people. We don't see some people who are more valuable than other people. We see people of of equal value in God's sight, who God loves equally, who they're here for a reason. And they deserve the same kind of love and respect and care and protection as anyone else. And so from a Christian perspective, eugenics is deplorable. It's it's an awful thing. I want to give you a little bit of history so we can kind of ground ourselves and understand how this has impacted our nation and the United States in the past. Um, Here in Canada, our track record is actually much better than America and than, than a lot of places in the world. It's certainly a lot better than it is when it comes to our track record on abortion. It's only ever been been legal in Alberta and British Columbia. This is sterilization. So taking a woman and, and sterilizing her on purpose because we believe she's not a fit woman and won't have fit children. It's only ever been legal in British Columbia and Alberta. In British Columbia, it's estimated that a few hundred women from 1933 to 1973 were sterilized, and it was only ever optional sterilization, or at least that's, that's how it was presented. It was only ever legal. If, if the woman decided to do it, then she could do it. In Alberta, in 1928, it was legalized, and it was only optional, but in 1937, the necessary element of consent was removed. And so now women could be sterilized whether they wanted to be or not. And this was a way of controlling unfit individuals. And so from 1928 to 1972, over 4,000 unfit women were sterilized, many of them against their will. If you consider that only 300 were sterilized in the country beside that were optional, then it gives you an idea of how many were sterilized against their will. Um, one thing that's interesting is that um, of Aboriginal and Métis people, they formed 2.3% of the population of Alberta over those years, and they account for 25% of the operations. So you see a little bit of how racism creeps into this, where it seems like at a much higher rate, Aboriginal and Métis people are being considered unfit compared to their Caucasian counterparts. 
So that's Canada's track record. Um, in 1972 and in 1973, it was made illegal in both of those provinces, and so it, it is illegal today. Um, in the United States, 62,000 women before 19, between 1927 and 1963 were uh, sterilized. Um, the case in 1927 that opened this up was called Buck versus Bell, and it was a decision by the United States Supreme Court, uh, and the court rules that the state statute permitting compulsory sterilization of the unfit, including the intellectual disabled, was for the protection and health of the state. The decision was seen as an endorsement of eugenics, the attempt to improve the human race by eliminating defectives from the gene pool. And there are statements from those court proceedings that say things like morons. We're trying to, to allow, disallow morons from being, I mean, just, it's, it's mean. Like the things that they were saying about this woman who was trying to prevent herself from being sterilized. And ultimately, the, the, court was against her, and she was sterilized against her will. And so this happened 62,000 times in the United States. Um, and what's interesting is the Supreme Court has never expressly overruled Buck versus Bell. Now, it's not legal in the United States to have that happen, but they've never dealt with that case specifically and overruled it. So why are we talking about eugenics? Um, forced sterilization was a bad thing. I think we all agree with that. Um, Around the world, it's seen as generally a negative thing. Certainly, there are still people who are for it, but not that many. But the important thing to understand is the thinking behind eugenics, that certain types of people, sh- certain types of people should be avoided for v- a variety of reasons. So that's the thinking. There are certain people that are not good for us. There are certain people that should be avoided. There are certain people that we need to deal with in a way that eliminates them from being, fr- from being born, Right? Now, that thinking as far as just forcing sterilization, that's no longer legal. But the thought process is alive and well today. So what I want to take, talk about for the rest of the class is just the link between eugenics, abortion, racism, ableism, and sexism. Few people in the world are as divisive as a lady named Margaret Sanger. How many people have heard that name before? By many of you. You know her as the founder of Planned Parenthood, Right? Um, well, her, her personal history is actually a fascinating and tragic story. But we'll specifically speak about her as the founder of Planned Parenthood and, and why she ended up doing that. Um, for some, she is a hero and defender of women's rights. There are many people today in society that, that laud her as being one of the greatest women for women's rights that has ever lived. When you consider the number of deaths she's responsible for. And you put that, that number beside Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, she makes them look like saints. It, it, is, it is insane the number of people that ultimately she's, she's responsible for based on what the, the organizations that she started and what they do, what they believe. Um, Margaret Sanger was a outspoken eugenicist. Washington Times wrote, Sanger shaped the eugenics movement in America and beyond the 1930s and 1940s. Her views and those of her peers in the movement contributed to compulsory sterilization laws in 30 U.S. states that resulted in more than 60,000 sterilizations of vulnerable people, including people she considered feeble-minded idiots and morons. 
Um, and, and there's a great deal of debate, even today, whether or not she was a racist. There are many people that try and say she didn't. And there's a few statements that, that she made that can be read two different ways. So I don't want to deal with those specific statements. All I'm going to say is the fact is she did speak at a KKK meeting, a woman's KKK meeting. Um, and this is what she wrote in something called A Plan for Peace. This was written by Margaret Sanger in 1932. She said the main objectives of the Population Congress would be to apply a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny, which is their descendants of their offspring, is tainted. Okay, so they're trying to put in a rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade or that group whose descendants are tainted or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring. To give certain dysgenic, which is exerting a detrimental effect. So dysgenic groups in our population their choice of segregation or sterilization. When you put a statement like that in the context of 1932, when you're talking about segregation or sterilization, these are two, two options for these dysgenic groups or these groups who have um, detrimental effects on later generations whose in- characteristics that they'll inherit is undesirable. It, it really does seem like a racist statement. It's really hard to say this, a group that we're dealing about segregation and we're putting segregation and sterilization right beside each other. And so I feel like the evidence against Sanger being a racist is pretty strong. In 1957, Mike Wallace asked Margaret Sanger, what is the greatest sin? What is the great, the worst thing you can do? I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being practically. So you get that, that the people who have what she says disease from their parents don't have a chance to be a human being practically. Delinquents, prisoners, and all sorts of things just marked when they're born. To me, that is the greatest sin that people can and do commit. And so that's the, the initial history of Margaret Sanger. How does abortion, eugenics, and racism tie together? I want to first quote something that, um, that Randy Alcorn said, and I, I hope this kind of tempers how you see what I'm saying. Randy Alcorn said, I do not believe that most people who support abortion rights are racist, any more than I believe that there are no racists among pro-lifers. I am simply suggesting that regardless of motives, a closer look at both the history and present strategies of the pro-choice movement suggest that abortion for the minorities may not serve the cause of equality as much as the cause of supremacy for the healthy, wealthy, and white. Okay, so you understand what he's saying there? He's, he's not saying that every person that believes in abortion is a racist. But he's saying when we look at the industry as a whole, there seems to be a lot of racist impacts that are occurring. Things that, from a simply numbers perspective, look really bad. And so I want to share some of those with you because I I think it's important for us. Abortion is evil in so many different ways, but here's just a new level of evil that happens with abortion. 
Um, I would love to use Canadian data, but unfortunately, as I've said, the reporting of abortions is fairly poorly monitored in our country. And so it's the, the per year is estimated and they certainly don't account for different races. And so in the States, it's a lot easier to do that. Um, we talked about Margaret Sanger founding Planned Parenthood in, on October 16th, 2016. So coming up in just a few weeks, uh, will mark the 100th anniversary of the first birth control clinic that was opened by Margaret Sanger. Um, in 1942, her organiza- organization changed the name to Planned Parenthood. They received $1.3 billion of funding per year, about half of which is from the government. They have 650 clinics and they perform 330,000 abortions per year. So that's Planned Parenthood. Now here are some interesting facts about Planned Parenthood. 79% of Planned Parenthood's surgical abortion facilities are located within walking distance of black or Hispanic communities. Okay, so 79%, that's four out of five, that's 513 of the 650 are located within walking distance of black and Hispanic communities. Between 2007 and 2010, nearly 36% of all abortions in the United States were performed on black children. (laughs) Black Americans make up only 13% of the population. So, when we're understanding that that 13% of the population is black, but 36% of the abortions are performed on black women, we're, we're starting to see that there's a huge discrepancy in the numbers. Here's what John Piper said. He said, the de facto effect, I don't call it the main cause, but the net effect of putting abortion clinics in the urban centers is that the abortion of Hispanic and black babies is more than double their percentage of the population. Every day, 1,300 black babies are killed in America. 700 Hispanic babies die every day from abortion. Call this what you will. When the slaughter has an ethnic face and the percentages are double that of the white community and the killers are almost all white, there is something going on here that ought to make the lovers of racial equality and racial harmony wake up. Non-Hispanic Caucasians make up 64% of the U.S. population they also account for about 36% of abortions. So what we're saying is, 13% of Americans are black, 64% of Americans are white, and they both abort approximately the same number of babies. Five times more likely if you're a black baby to be aborted. That's pretty shocking. That's not just like a few percent off. It's not just a little bit skewed. Five times more likely if you're a black baby. Since 1973, they assume that they're missing 13 million black people just from what the percentages should be. And what's even more shocking is that the percentages are getting worse and worse. Okay? The black population is rising slower than any other population in America. And the population, the percentage of abortions has gone from like 20 years ago, it was 20%. It's so it's going up much faster than their population is rising. So there's something really, um, really skewed here. It's not getting better. Uh, the website abort73.com wrote this. What, whatever the intent of the abortion industry may be, by functional standards, abortion is a racist institution. 
In the United States, black children are aborted at nearly five times the rate of white children and Hispanic children don't fare much better. Abortion, by the numbers, is a racist institution. That's not to say that all or even most of those who support abortion are racist, nor does it imply that there are not racists among those who oppose abortion. Okay? What some leaders are calling this is, they're calling it the black genocide. It's shocking the number of black women who are having abortions compared to white. Here's what Martin Luther King Jr. said. He said, The Negro cannot win as long as he is willing to sacrifice the lives of his children for comfort and safety. How can the dream survive if we murder the children? Every aborted baby is like a slave in the womb of his or her mother. The mother decides his or her fate. I don't want to belabor the point, but I hope we understand that that abortion is, it absolutely is evil for so many reasons. But here's a woman who is likely a, a racist, who supported the forced sterilization of people and is responsible for the forced sterilization of, of up to 60,000 women um, just from promoting her cause. And now she begins a birth control facility that we're setting up four of every five in black or Hispanic communities. And they're just, they're just killing blacks and, and Hispanics such greater rate than whites. It's a terrible thing. I feel like some people should wake up to this kind of evil. Like these numbers, they're, they're, they're all over the place. This isn't hidden. You don't have to look for it. This is fact. Everybody knows it. And so there is certainly some kind of link between abortion, eugenics, and thought process there, and racism in, the, in America. And I believe Canada to a much lesser extent, but I'd say in Canada as well. How about abortion, eugenics, and sexism? Is there a link between abortion, eugenics, and sexism? Well, there's no secret that this is a huge problem in China. Okay? Now, I don't know if you know this, but in January of 2016, they removed the one-child policy. Okay? And that was basically because so many countries were so against it that eventually they finally conceded to, to remove it. But they are dealing with a problem in China where there's about... 11 men for every 10 women. One out of every 11 guys has no real chance of finding a wife. What's been going on for so long? Again, this, this new kind of evil that comes with abortion. And this is, again, eugenics. What, what's the preferable trait? The preferable trait is, is, is a boy. And so let's get rid of the girls because we want boys. The same problem is happening in India. And again, it's illegal, but, but all of the standards of it being illegal aren't enforced. And so it's still, for every 100 women, there are 107 men. Yeah. When you see those numbers, and then my thoughts, it's like, oh, there's just one extra, or there's six extra. But when you talk about nations of a billion people, mm-hmm. uh, the numbers are staggering. In China, there are 696 million men and 640 million women. So 56 million difference. It gets pretty big when you start to, to blow up the numbers. And, and this was a problem that, believe it or not, was finding its way into Canada. Now, it was never legal to do this. Aborting w- women just for the fact that they're women in the womb is not legal. 
but it was happening and they were starting to see that and that's why they've stopped allowing women to know the sex of their babies, that, that they don't just offer that information because they were finding that a lot of people were actually choosing to abort females. I think that all of us can agree that it's not a detrimental characteristic to be a woman. It's not a crime to be a female. I think that the fact that this is going on and not not being dealt with is a shame. Abortion, abortion, eugenics, and ableism. How about for those who have some type of disability? Right now, it's estimated that about 90% of babies around the world with physical deformities are aborted. And about 90% of babies with Down syndrome are aborted. Some people think it's about 92%. That means that if a mother finds out prior to having her child that her child might have some kind of physical or mental disability, that she's 9 out of 10 times going to have that that baby aborted. Those are stats from the American Journal of Medical Genetics. And what's interesting is when you actually talk to people who have children that have disabilities, you find out something very shocking. 99%, according to the American Journal of Medical Genetics, 99% of parents say they loved their child with a disability. 97% said they were proud of them. 4% of siblings would trade their sibling with Down syndrome. So if they could trade their sibling with Down syndrome, 4% would. 94% of siblings express feelings of pride over their brother or sister that had Down syndrome. Staggeringly high. 79% of parents felt that their outlook on life was more positive because of their child with Down syndrome. And for siblings, the response was even greater with 88% feeling that they were better people because of their siblings with Down syndrome. You're getting that? That what we're doing here is we're saying that these characteristics in babies should be avoided. That somehow they're detrimental to society, that maybe that these people aren't going to have a good life or they're not practically going to be able to be human. For whatever reason, we're putting on something against them and saying that they need to be removed. But when they're allowed to live, overwhelmingly, people find benefit from them. People say that they're proud of them. People say that their life is improved because of them and their outlook on life. So they're, they're I mean, just statistics. There's a purpose and a plan for them. What, I know we know that because we know the Bible says that. But just when we look at statistics, it's clear that, that they're doing good things in society. That they're not a, a detriment or a hindrance to society. Amy, you had a comment. Yeah, absolutely. That that happens often, where women early on in their pregnancy are told that there's there might be something wrong with their baby, that they might have Down syndrome, or they might have this dis, dis, disability or another disability. I I know of a couple um, in our church that they went through that. The child's fine. There's nothing. I mean, and, and listen, I, I guess I said that wrong. The child would be fine either way, right? It, it, it wouldn't really matter either way, but the child didn't end up having a disability. So we're talking nine, nine, nine out of ten are are being aborted at, because doctors are saying this when sometimes it's not even the case. It's not even true. 99% of people with Down syndrome say that they're happy with their lives. That statistic is 
way higher than any other group of people in the world, any other culture in the world, any other profession in the world. And so we're not bringing in these terrible, useless eaters into the world. We're bringing in people who actually have joy, experience joy themselves, and bring joy to other people and purpose to people and, and, and wonderful things. Let's look at the Bible. John chapter 9. This is just a good story for us to, to wrap our minds around the fact that God does have a purpose for all these things. Um, we know that in Psalm 139, you keep turning to John chapter 9, but Psalm 139 um, David says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, that thou and my soul knoweth right well. He talks about the fact that we are knit together by God in our mother's womb. And so God is making us who we are. God made you who you are. Right? He gave you the eye color. He gave you the hair color. He gave you the abilities. And, and whatever you are, God wove you into that. So he is your maker. And that's true for whoever and whatever abilities and characteristics that you have. It's true for people with disabilities. It's true for blacks. It's true for women. It's true for everybody. But look at this story where it's just so explicit. In John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So here's the attitude. There's something wrong with this person and we want to know whose fault it is. Did this man sin? Now that's, I mean, they must have been assuming that this, this man had been able to sin in the womb. So was it this man's sin that he was born blind? Or was it his parents? And more likely they were thinking his parents had done something wrong to have a baby like this. Jesus' answer is pretty shocking to them. Jesus answered, Neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. God's purpose in this man being born blind and now being 40 years old is that someday the works of God would be made manifest in him, that God would be glorified by this man. And we, you know the story. You know what? Jesus heals this man of blindness and then he gives this incredible opportunity to preach and to talk about spiritual blindness. And that, that some people have physical blindness, but that's actually not a big deal. It's not actually a real problem. The problem really is spiritual blindness and all these Pharisees and all these um, religious elites who think that they have everything covered are actually spiritually blind. And that's so much worse than this man who was just physically blind for a time that this man's disability was for the glory of God. We need to get that in our heads, that God makes people for his glory. And when he makes people with disabilities, he made them for his glory. And he's got a purpose in it. And I know that some disabilities aren't, I mean, we're talking about, you know, when we say Down syndrome, you think of the, the really happy Down syndrome person. And that's, that's wonderful. But I know some people have disabilities that may be even more difficult than that. Right? You look back on history, though, and you see examples like Helen Keller, who just overcame those and, and are such a, a huge influence and a huge encouragement to so many people. I, I get disabilities. Did you know that the runners who ran the 1500 meter in the Paralympics, they beat the time of the runners who won the gold medal this year? It's amazing. 
that's like what here's the here's the interesting thing that we have a society who will celebrate the Paralympics. I heard that it was better attended than the actual Olympics. So the society will celebrate the Paralympics, but then we have the same society that's killing nine out of ten people with disabilities. That seems crazy. What are we doing? Are we telling those people that are now alive and well that their life actually isn't worthwhile, that they're not practically able to be humans? How does, that, how does this, these statistics and, and this attitude, this mindset, fare for people who have disabilities today? According to our society, you probably should have been aborted. You know, your mother should have made that loving decision for you. What an awful thing to tell someone. I, I feel like when we look at this, we look at all of what we've spoken about over the last few weeks with abortion, just the amount of evil in this killing of babies is deplorable. It, it, it stacks on stacks on stacks, and no matter where you look at it, it's, it's an awful thing. And so we should be against it. I want to close this morning by reading a letter that was written by the Reverend Jesse Jackson. If you know Jesse Jackson, he is um, a black rights advocate in the States. He's very outspoken. He a lot of people would call him a race baiter because it seems like he's always trying to bring race into everything. And he is currently pro-abortion, but he wasn't. And for a lot of his life, he wasn't pro-abortion. It's just just his very liberal leanings eventually led him to that position um, or maybe required of it of him politically. But this is what he wrote in 1977 in the National Right to Life News in an article January 1997. So the question of life is the question of the 20th century. Race and poverty are dimensions of the life question, but discussions about abortion have brought the issue into focus in a much sharper way. How we will respect and understand the nature of life itself is the overriding moral issue, not of the black race, but of the human race. The question of abortion confronts me in several different ways. First, although I do not profess to be a biologist, I have studied biology, and I know something about life from the point of view of the natural sciences. Second, I am a minister of the gospel, and therefore feel that abortion has a religious and moral dimension that I must consider. Third, I was born out of wedlock and against the advice that my mother received from her doctor, and therefore abortion is a personal issue for me. You recognize this? He's saying that from the aspect of biology... It's a human baby. From the aspect of the gospel, God considers that a human being that should be protected. And personally, his position is that his mother was was out of wedlock when she had her and was told by the doctor she should have an abortion. So this is where he comes from. From my human perspective, human life is the highest good, the summum bonum. Human life itself is is the highest human good and God is the supreme good because he is the giver of life. There are those who argue that the right to prophecy is of higher order than the right to life. I do not share that view. I believe that life is not private, but rather it is public and universal. If one accepts the positive that life is private and therefore you have the right to do with it as you please, one must also accept the conclusion of that logic. That was the premise of slavery. You could not protest the existence of treatment of slaves on the plantation because that was private and therefore outside of your right to be concerned. Right? So we can't hide behind this whole, it's just a private matter between them and their doctor. It's not for me to get into. 
saying, yeah, people could have said the same thing about slavery. That's, that's private between the, the owner of the slaves and the slaves. That's not for us to, to get into. And we can't stay quiet on that as much as we ought not to have stayed quiet on slavery at this point. Another area that concerns me greatly, namely, because I know how it has been used with regard to, this, to race, is the psycholinguistics involved in this whole issue of abortion. If something can be dehumanized through the rhetoric used to describe it, then the major battle has been won. Those advocates of taking life prior to birth do not call it killing or murder, they call it abortion. They further never talk about aborting a baby because that would imply something human. Rather, they talk about aborting a fetus. Fetus sounds less than human and therefore can be justified. And what he's saying here is he's bringing this back to slavery again. He's saying that what they did then is they dehumanized them by putting titles on them. Rather than a person, it was something that you owned, right? What happens in the mind of a person in the moral fabric of a nation that accepts the aborting of the life of a baby without the pang of conscience? What kind of person and what kind of society will we have 20 years from now if we can be if life can be taken so casually? It is that question, the question of our attitude, our value system, and our mindset with regard to the nature and worth of life itself that is the central con- question confronting mankind. Failure to answer that question affirmatively may leave us with hell right here on earth. So that's what... Reverend Jesse Jackson wrote in 1977. I thought that, that so much of what he said is relevant and applicable today. And I'm sad that he doesn't feel that way still. But I think he brought up a lot of good points. And 